everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 10th, 2022. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Good morning, everyone. This week, we're covering a whole host of topics. Up first, Sam Elliott is a boomer all over Power of the Dog, <laughs> and Benedict Cumbersnatch responds. Following up on that, there was a, a crazy Zoom call, and we get more information on the process of the Oscars, deciding to not show as many Oscars. Also, a viral Twitter thread has a proposal for how to do the Oscars, which I think is brilliant and should seriously be considered. On top of all that, we got our third headline. Zoe Kravitz claims that she was denied casting because she was too urban for The Dark Knight, which is, yeah, it's fucking bullshit. So (laughs) on top of that, we've got not one, but two Ask No Film Schools this week. And then we've got a little bit of tech news, which is really, there's no tech news, but tech news is coming. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. First up on the podcast this week, there's a movie out. It's been nominated for a lot of awards called The Power of the Dog. It stars people the internet love, Benedict Cumberbatch. Other People the Internet Love, uh, directed by Jane Campion, who is a wonderful, very talented filmmaker with a tremendous amount of nuance. Sam Elliott, who, like, I like Sam Elliott. I've enjoyed some Sam Elliott performances. I really don't want to discover that Sam Elliott's garbage. I really hope he's not. But Sam Elliott, like, really went out on a limb to just, like, boomer all over Power of the Dog and be like, no, Westerns are supposed to be about men doing men stuff. And, and this movie seems <laughs> a little gay. And they <laughs> shot it in New Zealand. And that's And a woman allowed. made it. A woman yeah, made it, it. It was really like, it was like, dude, you've got a powerful mustache. You don't need to continue to demonstrate your masculinity over and over and over again. We've all seen the mustache. I mean, I was, here's the thing, Sam Elliott, like, the, the Western is a myth. Like, it's fake. It's a lie. It was created what? as an original myth. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> You know, a, a surprisingly large number of cowboys were black and uh, Chinese American. Like, and that doesn't show up in movies in the 50s. But like, that is the the true reality of the situation. And the term cowboy actually was specifically about black cattle uh, rustlers. I forget the exact story. But if you were a white cowhand, you were called a cowhand, not a cowboy. So literally, the term cowboy is about African American cowhands. And it became our default term. And yet all movies about cowboys until basically the 70s were like, what if they were all white? So like everything Mm. about Westerns have always been a myth. And it's a whole bunch of men out alone, far away from women. We can assume some stuff happened. Like that's 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 what happens. Also, those camps, uh, camps slash towns, like there, there were very few women in them. And the women who were there were usually professionals in the sex trade. So I think it was a very like, uh, yeah, who knows? And yes, it's a myth. It's a fascinating, God, we could talk forever, or at least I could just about Western myth making and where it comes from and what it's done to our society and culture 20th century and beyond. And I love the actual history of it. I love the genre as a cinematic genre. And I'm fascinated by every, all the ins and the outs. Power of the Dog is a really interesting, like, it's not 
really a Western, though. It uses Western tropes. It takes place in the 20th century. So really, end and end of the West. It's about repressed sexuality. It's about people contending with their issues and loneliness and relationships. And Benedict Cumberbatch plays an extremely frustrated, closeted homosexual, as we assume. And there's no subtlety about that. And it's a very interesting movie. And we had the editor on this podcast to talk about how he worked with Jane Campion and what they did. And, and it's, it's a really interesting movie. Uh, whether you like it or not, should have nothing to do with the subject matter, in my opinion. And Sam Elliott, like, this is one of those things where this is, to me, the fascinating thing about 20th century, like, Western mythology and culture. I really think we can trace it to John Wayne. John Wayne played a certain kind of cowboy on screen, very different from who he actually was, which is often the case with actors. But the line became blurred about who he really was and who he was playing. Because let's be honest, the man did not have much range. And so I think the idea of him merged with the characters he was portraying even in his own mind, <laughs> to a certain point, his own very drunken mind often, if you want to find some, there's some really funny clips of him uh, talking drunk. Uh, but anyway, super conservative guy, and it sort of created its own culture around that idea of masculinity and conservative American masculinity, which is very unrelated from the West, the American West. It, it's like a weird offshoot. So what I am disappointed by, honestly, is that is that Sam Elliott seems to be on the John Wayne path of like, hey, I kind of am this thing, right? I've been playing it for so long. No, you're not. You're an actor. He's from Sacramento. Like, there's nothing about being an actor that, well, I mean, I guess you could get into the thing of like the Buffalo Bill Cody show. And there's this certain overlap between when the Western and the dime novel started to become like uh, when the legend becomes fact, you know, and that from a John Wayne movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. There's a lot of interesting crossovers here, but the fact of the matter is you're an actor. You're not a cowboy. Things are very different. And just because you played one on TV and in movies doesn't mean that you're anything like that. And Sam Elliott seems to have started to believe, like, I'm not an actor from Sacramento. This adopted persona that I have that I continue to play is really who I am, and I am thus an authority on the actual American West. He claimed, what does Jane Campion know about the American West? Well, what do you know, really, about the American West? What do I know besides for what I've read in books and seen in movies? So I, don't, I think that that is throwing stones in a glass house, obviously. He inserted himself into this meta-narrative because so much of what Power of the Dog is about is about men pretending to be tough guy cowboys who are actually something else or hiding something or struggling with something that they are inside that they don't feel comfortable with. And, and so Sam Elliott is kind of like becoming a piece of the extended meta narrative there is like, did you just not see it or did you completely miss the point? So that's, <laughs> that's what I find fascinating and frustrating about this whole thing is just, wow, here we are. 2022. And by the way, where was he for Brokeback Mountain? Also, did he just miss that? Because that was a while well, ago. And I feel like we broke this ground already, right? I was going to say, I mean, I think there's so many swirling things happening here to talk about. I mean, the first thing is, it's interesting to remember that he's from Sacramento. And if you've ever been to Sac, it does have like kind of a Western vibe in an old West downtown. But it also has turned out people like Joan Didion and Tom Hanks, neither of whom are like cowboys. 
And uh, so, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, Jane, Joan Didion is And they don't have that accent. Cool. Yeah. Right. But they also don't have the accent he has, which is also a funny side thing. It's like, I guess that just became, the show became reality, right? The performance. Well, but I mean, we're also in this world in which like so much, you know, even Brokeback Mountain, which was what, only 16 years ago, like the attention economy and how much content is now being created. There's just more opportunity for people to say really dumb stuff. Like Sam Elliott probably walked out of Brokeback Mountain and said to the people he saw it with, well, that's not a Western. They're being all gay. <laughs> but like he didn't say it on a podcast. And so, <laughs> right. Because, that's true. That's true. You know, and like and now you get the and podcasts create this sensation of intimacy. Well, I'm sure I've said dumb stuff to you over the years, George, because like, oh, well, on this podcast, and it just feels like we're two friends talking, <laughs> probably, and I forget that there's just, a lot of people who listen. Yeah. I'm sure I've said a bunch of dumb stuff today already yes. in this podcast. Yeah, so I think just, that there's some aspect of that, and I, I, we're seeing some generational stuff there with like, Sam Elliott was incredibly famous for like 40 years before this pivot to everything you say is public, and I think it's probably hard to learn to, you know, like, I assume everything I'm saying can come back to bite me. I'm aware that it could be complicated and I try and process with that. But like, you know, Sam Elliott is probably used to being able to say whatever he wants and most of it doesn't end up in the news and then this ends up in the news. I also think there's something interesting here. I was about to defend the boomers and then I was like, oh, wait a minute. No, the defense I was about to make of the boomers is wrong. Because I'm about to be like, well, but boomer filmmakers have been deconstructing the Western. And, and then I was like, no, wait a minute. Actually, the person I'm thinking of, Sam Peckinpah, wasn't even Boomer. He was Greatest Generation. He was born in 1925. But like Sam Peckinpah, not an uncomplicated person. But like <laughs> we've been deconstructing the Western since the 60s. Like starting oh, with yeah. the Wild Bunch, there's been a yes. real attempt to be like, okay, what is the point of this myth? What do we get from this myth? Why does this myth exist? How can we complicate it? How can we add nuance and reality to it? And how can we use this myth in other ways? It sounds like in The Power of the Dog, they're using the tropes of this myth to really explore the way in which that can become uncomfortable for people or be used as a way for people to avoid things that they are uncomfortable with. Yeah. And, you know, like we've, this is not using the, like we're 60 years into an exploration of the Western myth now. And so it's like one of those things to still, I'm always surprised when people are like, but, but Westerns are supposed to be gun smoke. And I'm like, well, well, no, like we're, we're already at the point, we're well into the point where like, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a parody of a 50s Western in it, Bounty Law. And, yeah. you know, among the things it's parodying are those old values, which were on their way out by the late 60s. And it's like, guys, we're totally. We're, yeah. So it's, it is interesting. I mean, I think there's a whole lot of stuff jumbled together here. It's really nice to see uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was just asked on the red carpet about the whole thing and sort of like waited in and did it politely, but like really, you know, wasn't like no comment, like had some comments and sort of tried to add a little nuance to the conversation about like people's work. And, you know, what's interesting here is I think there's a real danger of somebody calling this a cancellation of Sam Elliott. And like, no, I guarantee Sam Elliott's going to work just as much in the next couple of years as he did in the last few years. Hopefully this is just an opportunity or maybe he could go on a binge of like watching some deconstructionist Westerns. Yeah, I was going to say what I think he might even be playing to his crowd in a way now because he's on Yellowstone or not Yellowstone. I'm sorry, 1883, which is a, a Yellowstone prequel. And these are popular shows. And yeah, in 1883, I watched some of it. We had the editor of that on the podcast as well, if you want to find that interview. And what's interesting about that one is it really plays it pretty close to the OG Western style. 
Um, I mean, there are elements, of course, that kind of like modernize or step outside and, and reflect a little bit. But from what I've seen of it and talking about it, it it's a lot closer to a bounty law, let's say, than Brokeback Mountain or the Power of the Dog, certainly, or the Wild Bunch. Um, it's somewhere in, in, the, in the big, vast in-between. And I think maybe, I don't know how conscious it is, but I think Sam Elliott is sort of, Sam Elliott is sort of embracing this identity as the carrier of that. And look, there is a big community. I consider myself a, sort of an amateur American historian. I love reading nonfiction. Weird little bit about me that has nothing to do with filmmaking, but there's a great book I read recently that came out recently that is about the Texas Rangers who have long been considered, you know, this this paragon of virtue and heroism in the West. They are absolutely not. They were pretty awful. And there's some really deep, dark, fascinating stuff about that dynamic and what they did and, and all the awfulness and the bloodshed. And I enjoy that. And wow, the backlash over that. Like there is a big part of this country that does not want to let go of any aspect of the original American West mythology. They don't want to see it debunked or even challenged. Even if it's like, yeah, there were some heroic aspects to these people, but also some really awful. They don't want to see that. And I think that maybe Sam Elliott is thrown in a little bit with that camp just because he, maybe that's where his bread gets buttered. I don't really know. So I'm reading a lot into it, but I do think it's a fascinating topic and a really interesting uh, genre as it relates to our own self-identity how we perceive ourselves in the world and here in general, culturally, these are our knights. You know, this is our Greek mythology, whatever it is for this culture in the United States of America, this is that. And so it gets real touchy when people start saying, you know, there, there was an actual history there. We have a lot of evidence about it and it's quite different. I think that you're suggesting that Sam Elliott is playing 3D chess here. <laughs> I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't go that far. I think there's a possibility that he sees that he is like, hey, this is my audience. It's that we don't make Westerns like that. I'm a Western. I'm a guy who's in Westerns like this. And this is what Westerns are supposed to be. And I, I don't know how conscious it is or how much it's just like, I don't go in for that sort of revisionist stuff. I'm all about the, like, I'm cast me as, as the sheriff in Gunsmoke. Darn it. But, but I mean, I, the, the, the evidence we have that points to it being deliberate is when he talks about, well, how can they shoot in New Zealand? Because I'm like, you've had a 60-year career in film, Sam Elliott. You're aware that people do not always shoot in the same place because often the place no longer looks the same. Like, for instance, there will yeah. be blood shot in <laughs> Marfa. Good- you know this. This is one of the first thing you learn in movies. And also, all those classic Westerns, they all shot in Malibu. And then when yeah. Malibu became or developed, they all, uh, or Catalina or up in Lone Pine, those classic Westerns didn't also shoot in Montana. And even a lot of the ones set in Montana are actually shot in Canada. Really good point. I wonder what he thinks about like, like seeing like a John Ford movie. They were all shot in Arizona, but they often take place in Texas. I wonder if that bothers him. Or if he's Probably like, eh, it's Probably all the does. same because they're <laughs> like, like you're making a good point. It extends way beyond just the context of the roles he plays. It seems to betray a misunderstanding of how things work. Yeah, like every spaghetti western was shot in Italy or Spain. So, but they're still westerns. They're like almost genre defining westerns. So yeah, to most people, yeah, nowadays, I would love to hear him go on a rant about how those don't count as westerns. 
And how Those Italians eating their spaghetti cowboys. and making yeah. westerns, trying to tell us I, what America means. I, um, I would like him to suggest <laughs> that Clint Eastwood has no idea what the real American West is, and Leone has no idea. That works. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. All right, moving on to more Oscar talk. Can't believe we're still talking about the Oscars, but here we go. It turns out, and no one should be surprised by this, but it turns out that there is a little bit of drama going on within the Academy. So there was a Zoom call between Academy members, and it turns out that the officers of the Academy were the ones who decided to make the decision to of who's in the live broadcast and who's not. And the Board of the Governors, who you would think Board of Governors implies some power, you know, like a lot of nonprofits and stuff like that, well, they'll have like a Board of Governors or Board of Directors, and then they'll have officers like a president or a vice president or a chair and vice chair, yada, yada. And it turns out that this was a decision of the officers made without consulting the governors. They were not excited to hear that music is no longer going to be part of the broadcast. Wait, the governors and or the officers? The board of governors were not psyched about it. And it's it's sort of a tricky situation. The drama continues. We want to talk about this to talk about, like, you know, it is yet another reminder. A lot of times people tend to, how am I going to approach this? I was at a barbecue recently <laughs> and someone, I mean, this was like three years ago, but whatever. Someone gave me this big elaborate speech about how why Edgar Wright was not a right fit for Ant-Man because the studios, they only want the good ideas from the indie director. So they hire the indie director to get the good ideas and then they fire them. So they have someone they can control. And it was like this very serious speech that was like, this is what all the studios do. It's their plan. They have it all figured out. And I'm like, have you ever worked at a company? Like nobody plans that efficiently. Like somebody, some individual hired Edgar Wright at one of the studios Excited to see what Edgar Wright could do with Ant-Man after six months or nine months or however long it was. They realized it wasn't a good fit. He was gone. They hired someone else. Like, there's no, like, we always assume nefarious intent. Like, this was the Academy, the Academy Awards made this big decision. And, like, we assume of these other groups that there's a lot of unity and that, like, everybody must have made this decision together and the Academy is doing this horrible thing. And it's like, in reality, there's internal division in all of these decisions and they're small groups and it's hard to build consensus for teams. Like if you've ever worked on a team, it's hard to get everybody to agree on stuff and it takes a lot of work. And, and like, I like hearing about stories like, well, and the board of governors were shocked because there's yes. this idea people have about like monolithic power and like they're yep. making this decision. And it's like, well, no, some people made the decision. The other reason I want to talk about it is I'm not usually one to drop tr Twitter threads on here, but I heard a great idea on Twitter, and I'm going to repeat it, which is, guys, 
what we should do is instead of making the Academy Awards shorter, we should make it longer, but be more honest about when stuff is showing. So have a five-hour broadcast. The first two hours is all the nerd shit. And so if you're not interested in the nerd shit, you don't tune in. And frankly, that's kind of a dead time on TV anyway. And then you have a halftime show, which is where you do all the big songs. And you like, it's announced as a halftime show and it's at a specific time. And it's the like, if you're in it for the song and the dance, all of the songs and like maybe you get some musical performers, you treat it like the Super Bowl halftime show. And then after that, you have like an hour and a half and it's like really scheduled and like their schedules public, like what awards we're doing when. And the people who just want to see the big acting and best picture awards can tune in just for that part. And that like, and I was like, oh, this is actually really smart. Like, yes, viewership is down, but viewership is down because like no one has any idea when to tune in. Like the people who want to know best picture and best director and all that in real time often don't want to watch a three hour show. And then you'll get movie nerds for the first two hours, which will be small. We know that'll be small, but also you'll know who those people are. You can sell advertising to them. Like mm. there are ad people who are going to want that targeted audience because targeting is yep. what gives ads power. And then you sell different ads for the second hour and a half show that's like for everybody. And and this person's Twitter thread, and I don't remember who it is, and at me on Twitter, had a really great take where they were like, oh, and in the halftime show, they should drop all the new movie trailers. Like movie trailers should all be held off for a couple of weeks and then like big movie trailers show through the halftime show. And I was like, yeah, like turn the halftime show into an event, structure it in such a way. Because like, I guarantee you there's more people watching the second half of the Super Bowl than the first half. I guarantee. Yeah, it's it's a really good idea, actually. I like that idea. I mean, they do a long pre-show anyway, right? They have things running all afternoon. They start running stuff with the red carpets and stuff. So you even push that back earlier. And then you have even more. And there's, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great idea. I like your point about the monolithic they. We all do it for simplicity's sake. And actually, maybe we don't all do it. I definitely do it, though. And, and I know better, but I still do it. Because it's easier to talk about the world and situations when we can just assign blame or credit to a they. And you can just say they, the powers that be. So when I rant, like I did last week about the Academy Awards and this decision, there's a lot of they finger pointing from someone like me about, well, you know, they decided to do this and why are they so stupid and why are they this and like that? And this, this story is great because it debunks the idea that there is a, a singular they. There are a lot of powerful forces at work trying to address their individual agendas. And that process oftentimes becomes a mess. And just like why we often see like a bunch of movies released or television shows where we're like, man, this is bad. Why did they make this? <laughs> sort of like, well, they didn't. They were all kind of pulling in different directions. And this is what happened. And that's why I also like to often say like a truly great, 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 great movie always feels like a happy accident, like a kind of a miracle, because it's so hard to get all the forces to align and to get things to go the right direction, to get all the, the different they's on the same page. So yeah, for simplicity's sake, we can talk about this event with the Oscar choices and say they, because we are frustrated at the mass of decision makers. But when we really get down to it, it's important to identify that there's probably a lot of people involved who are equally upset about this and that these things become frustrating and nuanced. And so, yeah, I like, I like that, that this points that out and that we discuss it in that context. And, you know, solutions that people come up with are exciting. And I hope that the they's involved consider those options or those solutions because 
you know, let's be honest. The like we've been saying, our headline for this too was like the Oscars, the Academy doesn't seem to care about actual filmmaking. And that's not a shock and hasn't been a shock, but I think that we would like to see a best of both worlds here where this major event can give some airtime and some credit to the people who work on the craft at all levels, as well as service the the PR needs, you know? Absolutely. It's kind of like with that Super Bowl model, it's kind of like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people who tune, tune into the Super Bowl who don't care about football and are just like, I want to see the commercials. I want to see the halftime show. I'm, I care who wins this, the big game, sort of enough. I'll go to the party. But there's also going to be a lot of people who like love football and aren't even fans of the team, but are just like, I love watching great football and I want to see the execution of the X's and O's and I want to see the this and that. And if there was a version that eliminated some of the, the, the specifics of the play, you would get all these hardcore football fans who are like, what? You're doing that to the Super Bowl? Like you're making it into something where it's just a pageant? Like, and it's just going to be like, you're going to change the rules or something? That's crazy. So I think that's a good metaphor for what it's like. It's like you're taking the filmmaking, the, the making out of the filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things of like, we need as much creativity about how we use these awards as we have for making stuff. And I think the idea of like, well, just make it shorter, just make it shorter, just make it shorter. Is the same. It's the same as when you're in an edit room and a movie's not working, and people are like, "Just make it faster. Just make it faster. Just make it faster." <laughs> yes, you know, sometimes a shorter cut or a faster cut is a slower experience, and sometimes, like, sometimes you can make something long that's taut and dynamic, and you can make something short that's slow and boring, and it doesn't actually have to do with runtime. It's, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? I could go right now and I could take The Godfather, which is a movie that's like pretty universally agreed to be an enjoyable three and a half hours. I still enjoy it as a three and a half hour experience. And I could go in and I could cut exactly one second from every shot and make a movie that was like two hours and 45 minutes and it's faster and it would suck. Like it would just like it just would. The rhythm would be totally off. It would feel real weird. Like there's this idea we have of like, just make it faster, just make it faster work. I'm like, no, things should have. Things should have the appropriate time they take to do the thing. And I think that like the reason why this proposal really struck out at me as being such a good one is I'm like, oh, like it, it puts things in places where people know how to engage with it. Because I think what has changed is there's a lot more competition on attention and people expect a lot more predictability about, about what they're engaging with. Like, I think in the 70s, you turned in for the Oscars and you were like, okay, this is my evening. I'm not doing anything else this evening. And you're going to lay out the <laughs> yeah, awards. There's only so much to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's nothing else. There were only three other channels to watch and you had no Twitter or TikTok to look at. Well, and those other channels are deliberately not running anything that night because the Oscars right, they don't are wanna, on. Yeah. <laughs> so they're <laughs> like, right. you know what we're going to run this week? We're going to run Bounty Law in reruns for the 50th time or whatever. Whereas we're now in this world that's like, there's so much else. But like what people really like and respond to is like, oh, I know what time to tune in to have the experience I want. I just want to see the big awards. I know I tune in for the second half and hooray. And like, that's so (laughs) great. And it's like, well, well, can we just give people that? As opposed to this idea, which I think is a very common one of like shorter, 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 until eventually it's like, all right, well, can we do the Academy Awards as like a TikTok? Like, can we just like, is that possible? <laughs> quick can bite, we just you like, mean? yeah, a Quibi? Can we do a Quibi Academy <laughs> you know, Awards? We haven't talked about Quibi in, in so long. I, 
I just want to throw in back to my the metaphor of what of like a Super Bowl where they take out the rules. There is this ongoing battle about Major League Baseball. They're like canceling the whole season. I have a feeling. And the interesting thing about it is part of the war over it is that it's it's like long and losing fans. And they're they're proposing back and forth all these like, well, what if we do X Y Z to make it shorter and quicker? And then you're seeing all these kind of hardcore fans that are like, well, what are we going to be left with? Like, what are you doing to it? Or you're going to make it this or that? Or then it's suddenly going to be like, I think that that, that agenda to, to compete with all the ways attention spans change can be dangerous for the quality of a product if you're like not committed to like, how do we keep our product good and entertaining? like in the way that it's supposed to be. Because I don't know how to put it, but some things should have like a two-hour run. Here's a good example. Like this Batman movie, we're going to segue real easy off this. This Batman movie is like three hours, right? But people want to see it like in the theaters. So it's not like it didn't need to be short. It didn't need to compete with TikTok. It has Batman. And we know people always want to see the superheroes and things. But it's there's a way. Right. There's a it's way two to of our honor- best working actors are Pats and Zoe Kravitz. So as two phenomenal stars, it's got an amazing trailer. It has all of the things we want. And it's like, well, well, so do movies like so do the Academy Awards, the Academy Awards have great stars and like they're doing cool stuff. And like, I think it's I think it's possible. I don't think they're going to yeah. do this thing that Twitter thread did, but I think that they should take that inspiration for next year because it is still so much good stuff out there in the like in the nerd section and i'm not just saying that because the nerd section are my people i'm not just saying that because i like watching the sound people and the cinematographers get up on stage and like have an audience for a moment but i do like that and i wish there was more of that i wish there was a more creative way to introduce and incorporate what the nerds do that make the movies so valuable. And I'm going to plug again the podcast episode coming up soon that I did with the sound people on Dune. Without the sound on Dune, you just don't have a good movie, like period. Like, And that, that's true for all movies. But it's like really, really clear with something like Dune. Everybody plays such an important role in a movie. And, and there's got to be a creative way to excite audiences of all kinds about everybody's contribution to this process they enjoy. Yeah. Well, and then let's use that to segue to Zoe Kravitz. So Zoe Kravitz is Catwoman in the new The Batman. And it turns out Zoe Kravitz was up for uh, Catwoman in The Dark Knight Rises. And the part eventually went for and went to Anne Hathaway. Uh, George, do you have a little more info? Yeah. So... Apparently, Zoe Kravitz says she doesn't know if it came directly from Chris Nolan. She thinks it was probably a casting director of some kind or a casting director's assistant. But being a woman of color and being an actor and being told at the time I wasn't able to read because of the color of my skin and the word urban being thrown around like that, that was a real, what was really hard about that moment. That's her direct quote. This is, you know, extremely disappointing on many levels. Just, and unsurprising, sadly. But I think, uh, first of all, Catwoman was played by a black woman in part of the original show. So I also don't, I don't really understand that it's like, like, like that just automatically seems like bizarre to me, but it should, it doesn't seem like it should be a factor regardless of whether or not it was played by a black woman on the original show. It's a strange limitation. I think there's more and more conversation about roles being open to anybody 
of any skin color or background or whatever, whatever, because that kind of adds to things. And I, I forgot what the term for it is, but there's a name or a term for ca- open, opening up casting that way and thinking outside of the obvious box, which is like, well, if we're casting Macbeth, doesn't it have to be a Scottish white man? It's like, no, it can be Denzel Washington. And it doesn't need to be built into it any, in any way. And you know what? People don't mind. It's kind of this crazy thing, right? Like everybody was like, Denzel Washington's amazing. And he's amazing as Macbeth. And it doesn't need to be part of the story that, that he's not a Scottish white guy and he's black. Like it, it works. So we're kind of moving past that, I think, I hope, in little like ticks and little like incremental movements. But it's definitely progress. And this is definitely, looking backwards, a huge disappointment because you want to think better of these things. But it, it's nice that she's playing Gatwoman in this movie. Apparently she's great and the movie is great. I haven't seen it yet. But, but yeah, this is a, a story that's come out today that's extremely disappointing. Yeah, I mean, you know, as if you haven't listened to the Dead Eyes podcast, you should. As as the Dead Eyes podcast always reminds us, the things that an actor is told by casting about why they didn't get a part, first off, have a p- tremendous potential to be hurtful and everyone who works in casting, or if you're just casting your own small projects, you should be incredibly conscious of what you tell people as you don't cast them when they don't get the part. Because 20 years later, they could do a whole four-season podcast about the, the experience of losing that part. Dead Eyes is amazing. Everybody should go listen. But it's also like the other thing we get from Dead Eyes is, you know, we don't know if Tom Hanks said he had Dead Eyes or not. That could have just been someone in casting. And here we don't know if Chris Nolan said that he didn't want to take the part urban. And, you know, actually in the interview, she does clarify she's not 100% sure she was up for Catwoman. It was just a small part in the movie. Catwoman is a relatively small part of The Dark Knight. There's m- many other big moving pieces in The Dark Knight. But the frustration for me is at least like reducing all black actors to only urban characters. Because it's like, all right, well, they don't want to take it urban, but like there's there's plenty of upper middle class and upper class black human beings on planet Earth. So like you, you, you don't want it to be someone from the inner city, presumably poor. I think that's what urban is often coded for. It's horrible. Using the term urban in that context is so horrible. It's just un- inexcusable because... That they're obviously trying to indicate something and and come with all kinds of implications and not just say like, hey, we don't want to cast a black person in this role because they're afraid to come out and say that. And they should be. But the the codifying of it is a very dangerous, entirely separate conversation. But it's also a really good reminder of like, what, The Dark Knight came out in what, 2010, 2009, something like that. Like, I swear that felt totally normal for whoever said it in 2009. Yeah, like, probably. Yeah, I hopefully they would be slightly more conscious now. And hopefully we yeah. are moving into a world in which people do have that increased freedom. But like Yeah. And it's we, a really good to, point because we like you said, like you and I have weren't on a podcast at that time, but hey, everybody says dumb things in the context of the time period they're in that later look bad because of what's acceptable. And I do think that actually it's possible that at that time it was like socially an an acceptable way to talk about it. I don't remember and I don't quote me on that and I'm not saying it should have been, but it may have been. And I think that that's a good point is like these things do change quickly. As as insane as it is, it almost sounds like the way Zoe Kravitz phrases it in the interview, it almost sounds like they're trying to let her down easy of like, oh, they're not going to go urban with the part. As if that's Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, you're just not the right fit because obviously as a black person, you're urban. And they're not going urban with the part. And so right. like it's it, and it's one of those insane things where I'm like, if it's anybody, not about you or your down, acting. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And like, and it's like, that's, you know, it's just uh, the idea. It comes off as that it comes off as someone like trying to, to let someone down easy, but it's like, just say they're not the right fit. Just be like, Oh, you're not the right fit. You're not, you are not in this case, what we are looking for. Any actor, I mean, any actor, but me, I have a 100% audition success rate. I've auditioned three times and booked three jobs, but every other actor has to deal with wow. the drama of lots of auditions. And you, you, you don't get 99% of them unless you're me. And like, that's sort of the deal. I have a 0%. I auditioned once for something and I didn't get it. And I was like, so we're the two ends of the spectrum. (laughs) That was it for me. I was like, I liked acting as a kid. And I was like, I I liked theater and I did one professional audition and I was like, nope. Yeah. No rejection was too, too much. Yeah, I think no, it was I, a combination of rejection is too much, but also part of what we're talking about now, which is that I became very clear to me immediately that the entire relationship for an actor to this thing was going to be you have you you have so little control. You just you're walking in there, they have an idea in their head, there's a thing like you're just kind of like moving through this constant rooms of rooms of rooms of things and showing up and I, I, I just the rejection, but also just the, there's an anonymity and a powerlessness beyond everything about it that I was like, nope. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's brutal. And the way they talk about you is brutal. And I think we talked about it once. There was a director, there was a little uh, video where the director didn't know he was unmuted and the audition, the kid, the guy, he was young, I say kid, but he starts auditioning and the director says like, oh my God, look at the way these people live. And the guy hears him and he says, Oh wow! Uh, yeah, you're you're not on mute, um, but no, that's okay. And then he starts apologizing, and it was just like, oh my god! Like because it's so inhuman, it's so dehumanizing, I should say. Yeah, it's 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 awful. I mean, the reason I only auditioned three times is I was like, well, I I, I I'm batting a hundred, and I'm not gonna fuck this up with a rejection because it would hurt too much. So I can never do it again. Yeah, that's oh yeah. Well. <laughs> Yeah, or I would only audition again in a situation where I was like reasonably confident that I would get it. Yeah. Like all of the situations where I auditioned, I a producer or a director friend of mine was like, "Hey, I think you'd be great for this. Can you just like audition for it so that we can give it to you?" And I was like, "Great." And then I got it. Like it wasn't yeah. like real. I've never Cattle been on an open casting. Yeah, I've never done that. And it would I would be too insecure and it would make me feel too awful. I don't know that I, I would yeah, I ugh, god, I don't know how people do that. All of you out there doing that good for you. That seems like exhaust. It just seems like having your skin peeled off. Moving on to tech news. There's no big tech news this week, but there's rumors about a big announcement coming from Apple this week. So I'm sure we'll be talking about that next week. And then we're going to wrap up. We have not one, but two Ask No Film Schools this week. We could spread them out, but we wanted to do, knock them both out all at one time just to let you guys know that we try and respond to them super quick. Our first Ask No Film School this week comes from Joseph Eastburn. And Joseph asks, with all the virtue signaling going on, maybe people should start boycotting Chinese-made goods. And then specifically includes one Chinese-made photo equipment brand. I'm not going to call out an individual brand. There's a lot of Chinese-made equipment brands that show up on sets right now. There's Godox and there's Aperture and there's DJI. And I'm sure there's more I'm not thinking about right now, but those are the big three that sort of come to mind. I don't know that we necessarily need to specifically talk about it, but I did want to talk about sort of in general, boycotts, how I feel about boycotts and where they're most effective and how they work best. And also sort of like working with equipment from other countries, because it's, you know, 
10 years ago, it was really easy to ignore Chinese film equipment. The manufacturers were just starting out, just getting their feet wet. I remember a friend of mine ordered a Steadicam from China that like shipped over and came and it was missing parts. And, and I was like, yeah, I, I, you should just stick with Steadicam. Like Steadicam is good. It's like well manufacturer's reputation. But in the last 10 years, like DJI has a camera out right now, the DJI Ronin 4D, which is like a legit, like they're making a play on mainstream cinema stuff with an innovation that is ahead of everybody else. Like the way they built that thing is absolutely ahead of the curve and it's fascinating. And like Aperture, 10 years ago, wasn't on my radar. And like the new 1200D is like a legit light, which for like four grand is like durable and sturdy. And you're going to start seeing it on like little indies and it's super fun. And Godox is making some amazing tubes and they've got a nice app that control them. So like they're making plays. Oh, Felix is the other one that I should mention. Felix is like making some really nice stuff. So like they're making plays to do good stuff. And so the question then becomes like, well, how do we feel about the Chinese government oppression of the Uyghurs? Like, how do we feel about the relationship of China and Russia? And it's a complicated thing. I mean, I have a lot, I, I think about this a lot. I'm like, first off, boycotts are most effective when they're big and organized groups. So like, obviously the like current embargo and sanctions that are going on in Russia because of their invasion of Ukraine, like full support to all of those, like absolutely the right move. Like let's shut the economy down. Yes, it will really suck for people who unfortunately live under a dictator in Putin, but it's the best tool we have without getting into a full scale ground war to try and affect some support for the people of Ukraine. So like full support, but that's an organized thing. If that wasn't happening, would there be a major effect from like one person? I mean, China doesn't actually have a huge export market. I mean, if one person was like, I'm not going to buy a lot of Neva today because fuck Russia, like a lot of Nevas are great cars, but it's not like a huge dent to boycotts to be effective, have to be organized. Like there's this, there's this marketing thing you hear a lot of time of like vote with your dollar. And to a certain extent, that's totally true. But then to another extent, that is a way of like putting off on individuals what's actually a group action. Like saying vote with your dollar is totally an effective thing. But, you know, if like 20 people are like, I'm going to stop buying that shampoo because it tests on animals, like that's not nearly as effective as a large group of people or say a government passing a law about not testing on animals. So like I, I just bring up the testing on animals thing because I hear like vote with your dollar, like a lot among like lefty environmental types who are like, I don't buy anything tested on animals. And I'm like, that's great. But a law about not testing shampoo on rabbits would be even better. And then enforcement of that law. So like, I also wonder about different market segments and their participation in government technology. Like, I totally support and understand there was that Disney movie that shot in the area of China where the Uyghurs are being interned and worked with the local government there to secure locations. And I was like, that feels really fucked up to me. I am fine with sending that movie out. And I support, and I understand the reasons for a boycott of that movie. And I think that is really good. I would feel really weird about watching a movie that was made in collaboration with the local government where they were interning, you know, Jews in the 30s. Like, that seems too close. But I don't know. And honestly, I'm just going to say I don't know. I don't know. I think it's really important. Whenever I talk about the Russian government, I talk about the Russian government. Like, I talk about a Russian government invasion of Ukraine because the Russian people didn't invade Ukraine. I spent a summer in Russia when I was young. And like, I made a lot of friends there that are super nice. And like, they didn't invade Ukraine. I mean, some of them might support it and some of them might not, but like the government invaded Ukraine. And like the Chinese government is interning Uyghurs. There's 1.3 billion people in China. I don't think they're all morally responsible. And so I don't know, like, 
I don't know where it stops and starts. I, I've made the personal decision where I'm okay with working with Chinese made equipment and companies where I don't feel like the government is particularly com- like, for instance, if I got hired to work on like an ad for a weapons system, I think I would feel uncomfortable and I don't think I would do it. I certainly wouldn't shoot something where I had to work closely with the, with the government of that area. Like there's, there's choices we all make. Like the joke we always used to make when I had a production company, we had like long conversations about like what clients do we take and what clients do we don't take? Like when we were in business about six months, a porn client came up and we had like a long talk about like, how do we feel about it? And should it exist? And yada, yada. And we read some theory and we, and our joke was always like, would never work for Northrop Grumman, but they're not going to hire us anyway. So it doesn't matter. So like, I don't, my personal decision is like, unless someone can clearly articulate to me how buying from an individual Chinese company is supporting that government in a huge way, I'm still comfortable with it. But I could be swayed if there's nuances I'm not seeing. I also like the film gear industry is so small. It's like, you know, Chinese companies are are attacking the market because there's good margins in it, but it's still like such a small little thing. I don't know. I don't have a final answer on it. George? Yeah. Well, I think you did a good job laying out the entirety of the landscape. This stuff is really complicated because the point you make about individuals versus groups or trying to affect change as an individual or an individual company without a coalition, it means you will likely not succeed and it's hard to create. You need to create a movement or a coalition. And, you know, that's why they said workers of the world unite, not to, you know, not to suggest that I'm a Marxist, but I, but that's the idea is like, you can't, really the vote with your wallet thing, you make a really good point. They put it on us. They, the they in this situation, doing that again. But it's like we have to make this decision on our own. And we're very weak as individuals with our purchase power. We just are. And we have to survive. And we have to find costs that work. And we have to run businesses that can survive. And we have to keep our own profit margin. And so in a system that is bigger than us, that is hard to survive in if we don't play its game with by its rules. Uh, it's hard without group. There's power in numbers. Now, that's not an excuse. It's just an explanation. I often find myself faced with that, you know, the conflict between what I believe is right and what I choose to spend money on. And that's partly because of the limitations of my choices and the needs of my circumstances. But There's one thing about this question, which I really appreciate and wanted to address on the podcast that I want to address that's not related to the actual choice of supporting Chinese companies where we don't know all the details. And I will say to answer that as, you know, no film school is an entity, we will discuss internally and look into what we can do and if we can have an impact. But as an individual entity, our power is limited. What would make more sense would be for us to discuss with a lot of other entities similar to us if we want to do something about it. Then we start to have power. So if this email is the beginning of that, that would be great. And it might. But what I'm going to say is more about the idea of virtue signaling. I always like when people use this phrase because I always want to dig a little deeper into it. Like, what exactly is wrong with signaling virtue? When you get right down to it, I think that it's become a phrase people throw out like, you don't really mean that. You're just saying. But I want to I want to counter that I actually think it's not the worst thing to say things that sound good, even if you can't always follow through. 
because it's the first step, perhaps, towards following through more or being closer to some ideal of behavior or treatment of others. So virtue signaling, to me, doesn't sound like a bad thing. It's thrown out and thrown around in a lot of contexts like, oh, you're not really, you know, you're not really woke. You're not really progressive. You don't really care. You're just saying it. Well, saying it is better than nothing. And saying it is the first step towards doing it. And maybe we say it sometimes and we do it sometimes and maybe sometimes we don't follow through on it. But I really push back hard on it as a phrase, especially in the context where it's like the suggestion is like, I don't believe in that thing and you don't believe in it either. You're just saying it to get extra credit. And I just think that that like there's nothing wrong with 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 trying to be a good person. You know, even if you're just saying it, it's better than the alternative. So I I take issue with the use of that phrase. Yeah, I mean I virtue signaling falls into the same camp as social justice warrior for me, which is as soon as someone says it, I I assume negative intent. I assume they're trying to take good things and attack them as being bad things. Like social justice warrior, right. like if there's literally someone out there fighting for social justice, like that's a good thing. And it became an insult right. because I, it's weird that it's an insult because it's like, well, what exactly is wrong with that? And it's like, well, yeah. Can you break down for me? What about signaling virtue is bad? Like, I'd like to hear the the case against like that. What about social justice is bad? I'd like to hear it rather than just people label as it blindly as like, it's bad. Yeah. I want to hear the well, explanation. I mean, the argument that I think you made is a good one, which is like, well, if you only virtual signal and you don't follow it up with any action, like if all you do is change your Twitter profile picture to have the Ukrainian flag in it, but then you continue <laughs> buying... <laughs> well, you, yeah, yes. And that's the only thing you do. Yes. And you don't... But you keep buying Russian oil, then you're just virtual signaling. You're just using that as a cover for continuing to be totally shitty. Because True. of the way the Russian... Like, Russian exports are primarily raw materials, so it's incredibly hard for you to know like it's really like it's like it's really interesting to have China and Russia both on the table here as people that we're considering interactions with because like it's much easier because China does final product creation in the film industry it's much easier to target them right it's much easier to say like well we should boycott these companies because we can, but it's only because they're making final goods we can tell that but I'll tell you what I bought a Manfrotto I I own both Manfrotto and Sackler tripods and I'm 99% sure they both say made in China on them so like when you're doing either middle stage manufacturing or raw material creation, like Russia does, like Russia's primary exports are raw materials, right? Like wheat a little bit, that's more Ukraine, but also like oil, natural gas, like that's really their bread and butter. Like it's very hard to tell when you're at the pump. And as, as of today, as of I'm saying this, we still haven't, we've cut off everything else from China, uh, Russia, but we actually haven't cut off oil. So you can still, you could still go to the pump. And so you have to do a lot of research to see like, what companies are continuing to buy Russian oil and then try and track down like, well, what percentage of their oils from it's just, it's, it's much harder to effectuate. So you need a group thing. The other thing I wanted to bring up in all this is like, all right, fine. Like I'm just going to use as an example, Aperture. It's not the example from the original email, but like Aperture, sure. Officially a Chinese company. But like I said, Sackler, Italian, no, Sackler's American. Manfrotto. I think Manfrotto, Manfrotto, Italian. But like I, I bought a Manfrotto tripod made in China. Aperture, totally. Chinese company, but like they have a lot of employees in America. They have an office in LA with a bunch of employees. They're all like making salaries in America, living lives, like building a life for themselves. Like, you know, one of them is going to get a business degree while simultaneously working at Aperture. Like it, like they're employing people. And like, 
So where do we draw all these lines? I'm not saying that there's not lines to draw. I'm not saying you don't, you shouldn't do things to try and change the world. I mean, for me, like I try and ride my bike everywhere I go because I feel like fossil fuels are going to set the world on fire and the less fossil fuels burned we can. So like, you know, 90% of the trips in my life are on a bike, not in a car because of that reason. So I think that there's things we should do and I think we should all do them and we should, but like, I, I really want to make sure I'm doing the right things and have some nuance here. And it's like, well, if we look at sheer dollar value, I'm going to guess that Tesla makes more money in their Chinese factory than Aperture does entirely. I don't actually know how much Aperture makes, but I'm guessing that selling cars in China, Tesla's making more because they have a factory in China now because part of the deal with selling cars in China is you have to do either all or part of the production there. They have a complicated thing. They've got a lot of protectionist policies that drive some people nuts. But like, so Tesla built a factory and they're making cars there. And it is likely that just that factory business is making more money than all of Aperture. So like, should we boycott Tesla now? Because that means that right. Tesla is paying more money to the Chinese government in taxes than Aperture is. Like, it's all think- complicated and messy in the age of interconnected businesses, which isn't to say that we shouldn't, like, that there aren't clear, you know, like, Coke Industries, like, went and built a bunch of factories for the Nazis. And, like, that's some bullshit. We should have boycotted Cook Industries for building factories for the Nazis. I think if you're like, it's all so complicated. Yeah, and I think that's also where virtue signaling comes into play because there are people who are saying, okay, look, you're right. It is complicated. And so stop. So get off your high horse and accept that you're bad like everybody else and the world is bad. It's sort of like, and you can't pretend to be a good guy because you're not because you're going to buy Nike socks and you're going to drive, occasionally drive a car and you're going to fly commercial and your carbon footprint, like, so stop. And I think that that's sort of where I push back on the idea of like, look, it's better to acknowledge it and to think about it and to talk about it than to do nothing and just throw your hands up. Like we can't yeah, be perfect. I- we can't win every game. And I think that uh, I, I'm agreeing with you, but I, but I think that that's sort of like the, let's try to, to have an over 50% like win, win percentage on the things we choose and knowing that it's going to be really tough in the way this world works for us to be spotless. And it's just, we just have to like strive to figure out the, the right course of action on a case by case basis. And oftentimes we don't have the time to even think through because we're doing things like oh, I got to order something for my family, for my house and Amazon's right here and it's this thing and I haven't really researched this product or where it's manufactured or who's making it or anything, but I've got to do it because, you know, like you said, there are employees for Aperture down the street or whatever and those are people we know and they're, it's employing people in this country. So it becomes super complicated. Well, it's also one of those things of like, I really... I feel like I probably came off like I was trashing the question. And I don't mean to say that. I, I love the question and I want to talk about this. Like I want to have yeah, a me big, too. and I'm and I'm like open to my mind being changed. Like I'm open to like over the next six months having an evolving conversation about what this really looks like. And like the the trigger for this conversation right now, even more than the Uyghurs, is that there's a lot of arguments that with Russia cut off from the West, they're gonna to turn to China as their primary trading partner and they're gonna evolve in that direction. Now, that's assuming that the sanctions are going to go on for a long time. Also, everything I read seems to indicate that could take five to 10 years in order to pivot to working primarily with China. And there's a lot of complicated negotiations that go on there. Also, it's a situation where China will have the upper hand. And apparently, everyone thinks that they will just like offer Russia terrible terms and that'll slow things down. But like, it's a conversation we should have. If they like, we should, we should keep talking about it to try and figure out like, what is the right action? Because like, 
for me right now, honestly, there's so many variables going on and I keep trying to go back to like, all right, well, climate change. Like I'm going to keep making movies, but can I use less power? Like right now, the, I, sh- I can't believe I didn't talk about climate change in the 1200D, but like the 1200D lets me go out and just steal electric power from a wall outlet and not run a putt-putt Jenny. And here's the thing, electric power from a wall outlet is always going to be cleaner power than a putt-putt Jenny, no matter what you do. Like putt-putt yeah. Jennies are just not as efficient. And if you're lucky, you live in somewhere where your power grid, fucking Andrew Cuomo shut down our nuclear power in New York. Fucking Andrew, I fucking hate Andrew Cuomo. But um, <laughs> I've hated him for so long. I was so glad he went down. That guy sucks. But like, you know, even running coal or natural gas plants, those are cleaner than a putt-putt Jenny. So the idea that I'm like, oh, I can just go out with a 1200D and like ask some random house or bar if I can plug in power and light up this big space. Like, I can't believe I didn't talk about the aspect of climate change in that because cleaner like, energy. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's like you're going to get cleaner energy to the wall and I can just wall plug this random thing and not run a Jenny. It, like uh, real Jennies are actually not that dirty, but like putt-putt Jennies, which is what you end up on a lot of indie films, like those things you can rent at Home Depot. They're kind of dirty. Let's be real. And like, that is like a factor in all this. It's like, all right, well, if all of the LEDs I can afford are coming from China, and if that means that when I'm shooting my projects, I'm putting out less greenhouse gas, like it's all part of the math is what I wanted to say. But yeah, let's keep having this conversation. I really appreciate the question. It's a good question. I don't have a final answer on it, but I like the question and we're going to keep continuing to talk about it. We promised you two Essendon Film Schools, but we ran out of time. We ran over. So that's all the time we've got this week. I'm Charles Hain. I'm on the internet at Charles Hain, H-A-I-N-E. You can come at me on Twitter about all this stuff because there's like a bunch of naughty stuff to unpack here and we should unpack (laughs) it. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find me at George Edelman on Twitter. You can come at me too. That'll be fun. Be sure to check out nofilmschool.com. You can read about everything we talked about today and more. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check us out on Instagram and YouTube. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Leave a comment and let us know what you think about the show and the world and the things we talked about today. And please keep those questions coming. Editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening.